warm welcome to you. Um, when's the last time you heard some really good news? Uh, for some of you, maybe it was quite recent. Maybe you got a promotion, uh, you got a raise, you got the news that you'd fallen pregnant. Uh, maybe for some of us, it feels like ages since we've heard good news. We just kind of spending every day scrolling through social media, uh, clicking on the negative clickbait headlines, uh, sort of getting what we want, but what we want turns out to be more negative than we realized. Uh, and we do that until the Wi-Fi goes down because there's no electricity. At some point, we'll end the Eskom jokes, I promise. Um, what would good news be to you? What's the best news that you could receive? I mean, would it be your bond paid off? Uh, would it be that the significant other person likes you? Uh, would it be that your children actually packed their bags and got their clothes ready the night before? I mean, sometimes it's the little things in life, right? That would be good news. Well, this morning we're kicking off a series in Mark called Good News at Last. Uh, and the reason we're calling that is because the document is literally entitled The Gospel, meaning The Good News, According to Mark. That's, that's what it's called. And so we're calling this Good News at Last. Now, some of you, when you hear good news and you think about your life and you think about the Bible, uh, you might be thinking, well, Gareth, the, the Bible's kind of way over here. Uh, and the things that would be good news to me are, are way over on, on this side. Whatever religious or historical significance the Bible or Jesus might have, I just don't see the connect between that and my bond repayments, my marital difficulties, my work issues, and what I'm going to have for lunch when I leave here this afternoon. So let me tell you about my yesterday morning and about a situation that seems totally disconnected from the Bible and religion and spiritual realities. It's 8 a.m. yesterday morning, uh, and I'm really tired. Uh, we'd had a big bride at our house the night before. We'd had about 40 people there, including children, got to bed after midnight. Uh, probably about 2 o'clock in the morning, my allergies kicked in from all the bright smoke, couldn't sleep. and So I, I, I've had very little sleep. And um, Indira's lying down. She's got a migraine, and I need to do sermon prep. Okay, And, of course, we have a one-year-old. Now, some people can work when there is noise and distraction. I am not one of those people. I, I work best when there is just like this beautiful, absolute, utter silence, when, when even the birds chirping outside go silent in, in honor of the work that I am doing. And um, so what followed is what you can probably guess happened. There were tired kids, there was a tired dad, there was a mom not feeling well, there was a noisy house, there was older kids not listening fast enough, okay, sometimes not listening at all, work that needs to get done, frustration, losing cool, yelling, and we can joke about that, but it's actually not okay. And I, I ended up taking a walk outside. I actually literally got to a point where I was like, okay, I, just, I have to decompress at this point. And I took a walk outside in the garden, and I'm thinking, I have to get this sermon done. What's the point of telling people the good news of Jesus and the difference he makes in your life when you've just blown up at your family, and you're feeling this pressure to perform? You're feeling the pressure to be a good dad, and a good husband, and a good worker, and a good pastor, and a good preacher, and look like you've got it all together. That's not the easy yoke that Jesus spoke about, is it? And so, walking outside, looking at my life, and where I just sort of blown it with the family, and internally, my heart is not where it should be, and I'm feeling the stress and self-inflicted pressure, the beauty of this good news hit me, because it is connected. 
The good news according to Mark is not over there and life's pressures and stresses and even joys over here. Jesus came into real life, not a spiritual make-believe land. And so I'm going to tell you what God spoke into my heart, but he spoke it in the context of Mark. That's how very often God speaks to me. It's while I'm studying, he speaks to me in the context of that. So in order to tell you what he spoke to me, I first have to unpack what I had just been looking at in Mark and show you what the good news that what Mark spoke about is. What is this document, this, this letter, this book that is the gospel according to Mark? Well, it's an account of the life of Jesus, where he went, what he did, what he said, and the significance of it all. Uh, Mark was an acquaintance, maybe a friend at some point of the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. At one point, they had a bit of a falling out and they went their separate ways. Later on, they reconciled. Where did Mark get all this information about Jesus? Mark wasn't actually one of Jesus' 12 disciples, the the guys that spent three years with him. Well, uh, church history uh, tells us where he got it from. Papias of Hierapolis, uh, he, he wrote the following, and the presbyter said this, so the elder in my church that knew Mark said this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. For he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessity of his hearers. And Irenaeus, the church father, said after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. So Mark wasn't one of the original eyewitnesses, but he spent a lot of time with Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he heard Peter preach preach over and over again and go to different places and tell the same stories about Jesus that he told there and there and there, and he wrote everything down. Mark's account of Jesus' life from the teaching of Peter is very action-oriented. If you read the Gospels, the four different Gospels, each of them kind of has a unique angle on Jesus. Uh, In the same way that uh, if I took uh, four of you to a rugby match and we all watched the match together and I said, Arthur, give me your account of the game, some of the things you would say would be pretty similar and some of you would remember unique incidents. And that's exactly what we see uh, in the four Gospels. Mark is very action-orientated. It's, it's Jesus goes here and he does this. And then immediately he moves on and he goes over there and he does that. He actually uses the word immediately 40 times. He, he tells these stories in the present tense and he gives us a lot of detail. Mark's an incredible storyteller. Um, where Matthew and Luke tell us some of the same accounts of Jesus' life, Mark's accounts in written form are often twice as long because he he gives us a lot of detail. Maybe Peter was someone that was very detail-oriented. Just one example, uh, when Jesus drives demonic spirits out of a man, Matthew just tells us, well, this guy lived in the tombs. Mark tells us that they chained him up, but he broke the chains. He he broke the chains on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. He used to cut himself with stones. He's just very detail-oriented. And so we get these incredible insights into the life and times of Jesus. He's a fantastic storyteller. Uh, Mark wrote this account primarily to a Roman audience. Uh, We know this because of all the times he explains Jewish customs. If he was writing primarily to Jews, he wouldn't have needed to explain what such and such a thing means, Uh, and he used Latin terms to explain what he was busy explaining. And that makes absolute sense because we know Peter spent a significant amount of time in Rome, uh, and it's most likely that Mark wrote this account of Jesus' life shortly after Peter was crucified uh, in Rome. Why does Mark write about Jesus? What's his big idea? And I'm obviously setting up the the next couple of weeks and, in fact, a a lot of the rest of the year. And he has two main ideas. 
behind why he writes this book, who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. Uh, The ESV Study Bible describes it like this. The ultimate purpose and theme of Mark's gospel is to present and defend Jesus' universal call to discipleship. Mark returns often to this theme, categorizing his main audience as either followers or opponents of Jesus. Mark presents and supports this call to discipleship by narrating the identity and teaching of Jesus. For Mark, discipleship is essentially a relationship with Jesus, not merely a certain code of conduct. Fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of the disciples' life, and this fellowship includes trusting Jesus, confessing him, observing his combat, his conduct, uh, following his teaching, and being shaped by a relationship with him. Discipleship means being prepared to face the kind of rejection that Jesus faced. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in the book of Mark this year, looking at Jesus' identity and his teaching, observing him, trusting him, confessing him, following his teaching, and being shaped by a relationship with him. What we're doing is that the first five weeks is called Good News at Last. We're going to spend all five weeks in chapter one of Mark's gospel, and then we're going to do something similar to what we did last year when we did the book of Ephesians. If you were around, you'll remember that we we did a chunk of teaching in that book, and then we dialed out a little bit to focus on something different, and then we came back to that. That's going to be very much the format of our preaching this year, and so we're going to be spending a significant amount of time broken up into subsections in the book of Mark this year. I really want to encourage you to dive into the gospel. One of the most fundamental ways to come to grips with who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught is really just to spend time in the accounts of his life. So having said all of that, let's actually dive into the book. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Two things that really strike me immediately as I read this. Number one, Mark just lays everything out right up front. He's going to spend the rest of this account of Jesus' life making a case for who Jesus is. He's going to show how Jesus was often misunderstood and misinterpreted. But even as we read how people around him misunderstood and misinterpreted him, Mark doesn't want us to make that same mistake. And so he has this kind of trailer up front, you know, like a movie trailer with kind of almost like way too many spoilers in it. He's just going to spoil the punchline right up front because he wants us to get it from the beginning. This good news is about Jesus. Who is he? He's the Messiah. He's the, the king that was promised to come and rescue God's people. He's the son of God. People are going to wrestle with this all throughout the gospel, but he wants us to know up front. 
The second thing I notice immediately as I read this is how much a non sequitur verses two to eight are. Like he starts off in one direction and then it looks like he goes off on an absolute tangent. The good news about Jesus, he has a quote from the Old Testament that's not about Jesus and he has this guy called John the Baptist, right? I mean, how did we get there? He starts the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the promised king, by telling us about John the baptizer. He wasn't the first member of the Baptist denomination. He was John the Baptist who baptized people. But, but why does he start there? And obviously what he's doing, he's tying the identity of Jesus, God's promised rescuer king, the son of God, in verse one, with the significance of who John the baptizer was. So we're gonna unpack all of that. There's four big ideas in this passage. The promises, the practice, the people, and the place. Not only is it alliterated, but it's kind of like at a nice angle as well. (laughs) The promises. Mark writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And this was his, John the Baptist's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark wants us to know that the significance of Jesus and his identity and the good news he brings is tied up in the promises, not just about Jesus, but about the one who would come to announce him, to herald him. Uh, He introduces this Old Testament quote by saying, as he's written in Isaiah the prophet, but actually he quotes two different passages. He actually quotes Malachi chapter three, verse one, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. They're not prophecies about Jesus. They're prophecies about the one who would herald and announce Jesus. So the first part that he quotes, Malachi 3, one, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. What's so interesting about this, this quote from Malachi is Mark has actually changed it slightly. Malachi actually wrote, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. God speaking, saying, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's the promise that God makes. Mark deliberately changes it ever so slightly, not to change the meaning, but to emphasize the point he wants to make. As if he's speaking to Jesus, he says, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, to understand what he's doing here, we need to understand that God has always eternally existed as three persons in one. Father, Son, and Spirit, equally, fully, all God, and yet there is one God. In in some way that we cannot understand, God is absolutely and completely one and yet also three. So God says through Malachi, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Mark says that God said, I will send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. Both ways of speaking are absolutely correct. God is preparing the way through John as prophesied by Malachi to step into history himself. God is preparing the way through John as prophesied by Malachi for Jesus to step into history. Those two things are equal. They are the same thing. So this, this first promise, this first prophecy tells us the significance of who is coming. 
God himself is stepping into history. Jesus, the son of God, is stepping into history. Now, the reason he says he quotes Isaiah is the longest section does come from Isaiah. It tells us what God himself, Jesus, stepping into history is coming to do. So I want to read a little bit of context around this. Whenever we we read a New Testament writer quoting the Old Testament, one of the first things we should do is kind of read at least the whole chapter to get the big idea. Very often, you quote a little piece of it, but some of the significance is, is intended for us to go and read. What is this passage actually about? You could actually go and read the whole of Isaiah 40. And it would give you even more context. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I would actually encourage you to, to see exactly what it is that Jesus came to do. But I'm going to read parts of it. So from verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then the part that he quotes, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in a desert a highway for our God. And he then proceeds to unpack what it is that God himself, Jesus, is going to do. I'm just going to read two more verses. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Okay, the promise is that God would send a messenger ahead of himself, ahead of you, Jesus, Mark says, ahead of Jesus. The messenger will announce the coming of the Lord, of God himself, of Jesus, and he will announce that God is coming to comfort his people, to deal with their sin, to reward those who follow him, to gather his people to himself like a shepherd gathers his lambs, gently leading them close to his heart. What an incredible message that John was announcing. God himself is coming to set everything that is wrong right. Everything in your heart that feels broken, everything in your heart that feels disconnected from God, God himself, Jesus, is coming to set that right. John the baptizer, as the promised messenger announcing this, then gives us additional details about this promised one. He says, he's more powerful than me. Now, that might seem like a strange thing to say, But John was actually incredibly significant. Mark records the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Okay, they're not going to a music festival or to go mountain biking through a picturesque valley. They're trudging through the hot Judean wilderness to hear someone announce to them in the strongest possible terms, your life with God is wrong. You need to get it right. Okay, I don't know. If I went out and I went out into the stick somewhere there, and, and I started to say that to people. I'm not sure how many people would come out to listen to me, right? But the incredible significance and spiritual power that he had, people flocked to him in droves. The Jewish historian Josephus, not a follower of Jesus, records just how influential John was and how worried he made Herod Antipas, the Roman leader of that region, who ultimately had John the baptizer murdered. That's how significant he was. But all that influence and power and significance, John says, is nothing like the one that I am yet to announce. He says, not only is he more powerful than me, he's more significant than me. I'm the promised messenger of God, but even as one prophesied about, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. 
To put that into context, wealthy, important people had these servants whose awful job was to take off their master's sandals after they had been trudging through the dust and the muck and using the same roads as donkeys and horses and sweating, and and you get the picture. I'm not going to get any more graphic than that. John says, the one I am announcing is so significant, I wouldn't even be worthy to be in that slave position. Not only is he more powerful than me, not only is he more significant than me, he comes to bring a bigger change than me. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's saying, you've come to me because I'm announcing that God himself is coming to deal with sins and gather his people to himself, and and you're preparing for that through this practice of baptism, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's this promise, God himself, Jesus coming, dealing with sin, comforting his people, gathering them to himself, more powerful, more significant, bringing a more fundamental baptism than even this influential messenger who preceded him. That's the promise. Let's talk about the practice. I said we talk about baptism. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. He then says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Because of this incredible spiritual power that John had, people were trekking out into the wilderness to turn back to God. They were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. Now, maybe you don't get just how big a deal this was, okay? In Durbanville, baptism is quite a a big deal, all right? We have different uh, churches, different denominations that have different views on baptism, and and sometimes getting baptized in Durbanville can be a big deal for some people because of post associations, because of what other people think about it. Well, as big a deal as it can be in Durbanville to get baptized, it was unbelievably bigger if you were Jewish, You see, Jews didn't get baptized. The people who got baptized were Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who wanted to become followers of God. So yeah, you've got all these Jewish people who are the children of God. We are the people of God. And John says to them, no, 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 no. You need to confess your sins and you need to do what those who aren't the people of God do to symbolically become the people of God. That is unbelievably offensive. He's basically saying to them, you think you're the people of God. You're just as far away from God as those people who are pagans and don't even know who the real God is. That's what he's saying to them. And yet, God worked through him in such a way, to such an extent that hordes of people came out and underwent this thing that must have been such a culture shock for them to demonstrate that they needed more of God in their lives. They needed something more than cold and empty religion. They needed a relationship with God. That's what was happening as John was baptizing people. John says, no, 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 no. This is, this is you think this is big. This is not big. This is, this is under 10 cricket. Not the protest, maybe not the best example right now. Um, this is under 10 rugby, not the Springboks. This is not a big deal right now. I'm just baptizing you with water. Jesus is gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus brings a bigger, but more importantly, a more fundamental change than John. See, people came to John because they knew they needed a change in their lives. They they knew they needed God to break into their lives. John facilitates that all the time, pointing to something much bigger. What he's pointing to is not a change that we do, but a change that God does. 
We, we call this change regeneration. It's when you become a follower of Jesus and your heart is regenerated. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and opens you up to the reality of who God is and, and you see his goodness and you see his love for you and you see his greatness and your heart can't help but respond to who he is and, and your priorities realign themselves and your affections realign themselves and suddenly who God is and what Jesus has done comes to dominate your reality. Not always, each and every minute. We mess it up. But when we take a walk and we decompress and we think about it, we go, wow, this is actually what my life is about. And, and, and that keeps coming back to us because the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and changes us and opens our eyes to that reality. See, the baptism of John is an external symbolic thing. Is, is it not important? Absolutely it's important. Symbolism is important. But what Jesus does is more fundamental. It's not just us saying, oh, I need to change something in me. It's God himself awakening us to the reality of who he is so that we are changed inside by his goodness and his love and his grace. Some of you may wanna change some things in your life. There may be some things in your life that you know are wrong. There's, there's habits you wish you could break. There's cycles of brokenness you need to end. It's not enough to want to it's not enough to go to some guru that's gonna help you or read a book that he wrote. It's not enough to go through religious or non-religious mantras, behavioral therapy. You need the Holy Spirit to come and change your heart. And that happens when you give yourself to Jesus and it happens as you realize, man, I'm not quite aligned. Won't you pour out more of your Holy Spirit in my heart, Lord Jesus? That's the practice and what it means for us. Thirdly, the third emphasis of the passage is the people. There's obviously two characters here. There's the messenger, and you may not have noticed this, but someone we actually haven't met yet. He said this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We haven't actually met Jesus yet, the one he points to, God himself. Don't, don't miss the significance when we get to this next week. The, the messenger is saying God himself is coming. He's the promised rescuer king. He's the son of God. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, it's meant to be a disconnect, all right? I thought God himself was coming. We sometimes miss that disconnect because we know the story, right? But just think about it for a moment. God, the rescuer, the king, the savior is coming. At that time, Jesus came from this obscure little town that like nobody good ever came from. That's why Mark gives us the trailer up front. Okay, he doesn't want us to think, oh, this is just a bit two-piece character that's not gonna matter. He wants us to know the significance of this. But let's focus on the messenger, Okay. This is a pretty strange looking guy. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Maybe we should all go on the John diet, right? I mean, I've heard of lots of biblical diets. I don't know if anybody, anybody know, if, has anybody ever done the John diet? For some reason that one missed the, the sort of Christian bookseller list. What's the significance of his diet? Why did he eat locusts and wild honey? What's the John diet? The John diet was John was hungry and he was in the wilderness. That's the John diet, okay? Um, he ate the one insect that you were allowed to eat under the Mosaic law because he was a follower of God. He was still under the old covenant. So he followed God's law. He ate the one insect he was allowed to and he ate honey because that's what he got. The point of the locust and the wild honey is not to say eat like him. It's to say he really was in the middle of nowhere. Like he couldn't just go to the corner cafe and get a loaf of bread. You wanted to eat, you caught yourself an insect and you dipped it in honey because hopefully that way it tastes a little bit better. What's the significance of his appearance? What's with this, this, this camel hair and this belt? Well, 
In 2 Kings, some men come to King Ahab with a word from a prophet for him. They don't know who the prophet is. And so they they give the king this word. And verse 7 of 2 Kings 1, the king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. That should sound familiar after reading Mark 1. The king said, aha, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Okay, so apparently Elijah was known for his dress sense or possibly his lack of dress sense. And uh, John, not coincidentally, has the same fashion sense. He's modeled on Elijah. Why does Mark point this out? Why is this significant enough to get mentioned? Well, because Mark wants to make clear just how many promises point to this messenger who points to God himself coming down. Malachi chapter 4, the prophet wrote, See, I will, God said through the prophet, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Before God himself comes down to deal with sin, he will send the prophet Elijah. Now, John isn't Elijah in the sense that Elijah has come back from the dead, but he's Elijah in the sense of his prophetic ministry, and we'll see more of this later on in the book of Mark. He's a powerful prophet sent by God himself. Mark wants us to get absolutely clear. This John is not just some strange guy out in the wilderness. He's someone that God has promised that he would send beforehand to come and announce that God himself is stepping into history. And of course, the other person in view who we haven't met yet, but he's mentioned, and who we know with the benefit of foreknowledge, is Jesus. God has come to rescue his people, to bring them back to himself, and at last, at long last, after this long period of waiting, the rescuer king and God is here. All the promises are going to be fulfilled. All the longing of God's people is going to be satisfied. He's going to deal with everything that separates us from God, allowing us to know him and his love. You can know him. You can know God's love. You can know relationship with God and who you were created to be, experiencing forgiveness and acceptance. You can become his disciple, or if you are already his disciple, walk deeper into following him. Practically, you do this by spending time every day in his word and every day speaking to him in prayer. To assist you with that, as we go through the book of Mark, we have a 30-day exploration guide into the good news of Jesus. We're going to be reading this together as we go through Mark together. We've gone to the effort of writing and printing this because it's that important. It's not just a nice add-on. If we want to grow in following Jesus, we have to spend time in his word. And sometimes we don't understand everything we read. That's why it's helpful to have something to help us that can give us some of these insights that we don't all have time to go and read about and track down ourselves. What is the significance of this? Is it important? Isn't it important? But we only grow in following Jesus as we spend time in his word and as we spend time speaking to him and as we spend time gathering weekly to sing his praises and sit under the teaching of his word and as we gather in smaller groups in our life groups to discuss how this works itself out in our lives. That's the people. The final thing that is really emphasized in this passage is the place where all of this takes place. Notice all of the references to location in these eight verses. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. They went out to him, baptized in the Jordan River. He eats locusts and honey because he's so far out in the wilderness. Why does John... I beg your pardon. Why does Mark make such a big deal about John being in the wilderness at the Jordan and the people going out to him? 
Interesting thing was happening in that time of history. Wilderness was this idea. It was sort of this cultural idea that existed at the time. There were communities of people that had gone to live out in the wilderness. The most, the most famous of them was the community at a place called Qumran. You might have heard of them because that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. Right about the same time as all of this is happening, these guys had gone to live out in the wilderness in an attempt to get closer to God. Then at the same time, there were revolutionaries that wanted to try to bring about God's kingdom by force. Uh, we read about one of these guys. He was actually an Egyptian in the book of Acts. Josephus, the historian, actually tells us more about him. And they symbolically also gathered in the wilderness before marching into Jerusalem. Didn't go well for them. But um, the point is that this idea of being in the wilderness was this cultural idea. Why? What's the significance of the wilderness? Well, if you know a bit about the Bible, and it's okay if you don't, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to learn more, but if you know a bit about the Bible, and you hear about the wilderness, and you hear about the Jordan River, and you hear about God coming to speak with these people, you can't help but think of the Exodus, can you? You can't help but think of how God rescued his people out of Egypt, and he took them into the wilderness, and that's where he made them his people, and he spoke to them, and they learned to trust him. And throughout Israel's history, yes, everything didn't always go 100% perfect in the wilderness, but throughout Israel's history, there's always this, this longing, this looking back to that sort of time of, of newness with God and intimacy with God and, and God speaking to them from the mountain and this incredible prophet that mediated God's presence for them. And, and there was something of intimacy with God and something of freshness and newness and, and purity of relationship with God. And that's why these guys with the Dead Sea Scrolls are found were trying to live out in the wilderness. And, and that's why these revolutions would start off in the wilderness. It's a way of saying we're trying to reconnect with God. We're trying to reconnect with that first taste we had of who God is and that intimacy we experienced as he spoke into our lives. We need that in our lives. That's why people were prepared to trek out into the wilderness to hear John speak. They understood the significance. I'm going into the wilderness because I'm longing for that intimacy with God. I'm longing to hear him speak to me as he spoke to my ancestors been led daily by him, spoken to by him. I don't know about you, but that place, that idea of wilderness speaks incredibly to me. It speaks incredibly to me. God coming in intimacy and freshness and newness and purity and a devotion and a focus and knowing his love. So how does this emphasis on a messenger practicing symbols of life change and renewal, pointing back to God, pointing to God himself, coming to rescue his people and gather them to himself in a location symbolizing hope and purity and God speaking and relationship. How does that speak to us? How does that connect it to fatigue and blowing up at kids and pressure to be a better parent and spouse and worker and everything else? What is this good news at last? And so I walked outside trying to clear my head from anger and frustration, mostly at myself at this point. How can I call people to follow the one this messenger is pointing towards? And God said, because everything that Mark is talking about is because I love you. That's why I came. I love you at your worst. I love you whether or not you perform. Because you are loved regardless, you can own your mistakes. Because you are loved regardless, you can let go of the pressure. I came for that simple, pure beginning relationship where I met with you and you learned to trust me. 
take this good news and let it sink in again. Let it work itself into you again. Ask for more of my spirit. I came to give him to you. You're not defined by your victories or your challenges. You are not defined by your mistakes or your successes. You are defined by what I have done. That's what John was announcing. That's what Mark wants us to know. That intimate relationship with God that we see tastes of throughout Scripture, Jesus came to bring to a whole other level. He came so we could know him, so we could be accepted by him, so all the pressures and the stresses and the things that seek to define us find their rightful place. Yes, some of them might even be important, but ultimately they are insignificant compared to the good news that you are known and loved by a God who came himself to step into history and make a way for you to be reconciled with him. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna take communion. I love ending a message like this in communion because communion speaks of the intimacy we have with God. It speaks of what God has done for us. If the band can make their way to the front, it speaks of what God has done for us. It speaks of how he made a way. It speaks of him stepping into history and the lengths that he was prepared to go to to make a way for us. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded. It's an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves. Bruce already mentioned it. I jotted down during worship to mention the, the word that Mike brought in prayer this morning. This idea that God is constant, that God has done the work, that it's finished. The problem is not where God is. The problem so often is where we're at. And what we need to do is we just need to take that walk. We need to decompress whether it's outside in the garden or up to the communion table, we need to have that moment of realization and remembrance and that moment of asking God to forgive us and to pour his spirit out into our hearts again. So let's stand. The band is gonna play. You can come to the front, you can take the elements and I'll be back up in just a moment to lead us to take communion together. Jesus, what incredible good news John the baptizer came to give us. God himself stepping down into history to right every wrong, to make every hurt healed, to reconcile us back to God. Ultimately, it's what our hearts long for. Ultimately, it's what we yearn for, to be accepted, to be known, to be loved, not to be defined by all the pressures and things that would seek to conform us, but to be changed as you pour out your Holy Spirit into us to make us into who you created us to be. Maybe some of us are feeling like we're in a good space in that. We're feeling like we're close to God. We've been speaking to him. We've been reading his word. He's been speaking to us. We've been responding. His Holy Spirit. We've been changing, becoming more like Him. Maybe some of us have just had a bit of a wobble this week or this year or however long. Maybe some of us are feeling far from God. We're feeling like the pressure to perform is defining us more than what God has done for us. This is just an opportunity to decompress to be reminded this is what is of ultimate significance this is what is of ultimate beauty this is what is of ultimate worth 
as we take communion together this morning, Jesus. Won't you come and speak into our hearts? Won't you come and remind us of your love? Won't you pour out your spirit and turn our gaze to you and your beauty and everything you've done for us? Let's take communion together. Jesus, I wanna pray for those who are deeply aware of things in their life that they need to change. Deeply aware of areas in their lives where it doesn't line up with you and your word. I wanna ask for the courage to confess and I wanna ask that you would pour out your spirit. You would bring change through your word and through community and through worship. We don't just want to be those that are trying to be better people. And thankfully, we don't have to be Jesus because you pour out your spirit in our hearts. And finally, for those here this morning who who don't know you, who are looking into Christianity, who, if I asked, would say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. It sounds interesting. It sounds like something I might be keen on. I want to pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself. Won't you open hearts to know you? Won't you come and speak to every person that is far from you and invite them in their heart to come to know you? In Jesus' name, amen.